This is the Alone With Our Principles podcast, episode 13. If I was bleeding out of my eyes, you guys would make me go to school. I'm Eric. And I'm Chris, and we're both elementary school principals in the Asperia Unified School District in Southern California. In this episode, Eric, Carey, and I share our weirdest or funniest stories from working in education. Alone With Our Principles is unofficially sponsored by Starbucks Coffee. Coffee is to school administrators what gasoline is to automobiles. Only more expensive. Don't mess with the bully, young man. You'll get the horns. You got a real attitude problem, McFly. You're a slacker. So far this semester, he has been absent nine times. I'm the principal, man. All right, so we are guest-free today, so we get to kind of cut loose a little bit. Um, so we'll talk about some of our weirdest or funniest school stories. There's a lot of a lot of strangeness goes on, so I'm sure we've all got a lot uh, to draw from on that. Um, but yeah, we go through a modified version of the ki- of the quiz uh, and and kind of go from there. And with us, as always, and we're not going to forget to introduce her this time, is our fact checker and technical advisor, Carrie Lewis. Hello again, gentlemen. It is special point of not forgetting Insert applause this time. right there. That's right. <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. And she is as absolutely an equal part of today's episode, especially because we have yes. quiz questions for her, just as she has questions for us. That is correct. We sink, we swim, we rise, we fall, we meet our fate together. All right. So with all that said, we are going to jump right into our quiz today. And this is for all three of us, right? I believe each of us has come today prepared with a couple of questions for the others. So, I guess with that in mind, we're just going to dive right in. So, I'm going to ask a question of Chris, and then he's going to ask a question of Carrie, and we're going to go around the room, so on and so forth, and we're just going to see where that goes. Yes. (laughs) So, Chris, first question for you today on this episode of Along With Our Principles. When have you changed your mind about something important, and why? Yeah, I had to think about this one. Uh, I've got to go back a little bit. And the the topic is basically the concept of everybody gets a trophy, everybody gets a certificate. Uh, because when I was teaching, there was a lot of talk going on about building self-esteem. And there were self-esteem programs created. I worked for a principal who insisted that every student get a certificate at, at the assemblies. And it made sense to me at the time because it's like, all right, we want kids to feel recognized. We want kids uh, to be appreciated for their accomplishments and for who they are. But what I noticed over time is that it didn't really work that way because kids and adults, you know when you've put in 100% effort on something. You know when you've given your best and and when you haven't. And if, if everything is treated equally, then... It, it's not really the self-esteem or the motivation that you hope it's going to be for the kids that are struggle. And in my experience, it also devalues the whole process for the kids who really are pushing themselves. You create this middle ground where nobody's really feeling authentically recognized on either end of the spectrum. So I struggled with that for a little while and then kind of worked that around where we need to be authentic about it. Now, you can't swing too far the other way either. You can't just say, if you're not first, you're last, deal with it. I mean, that's not realistic uh, either. Um, but true motivation is going to become from, come from struggling with something and failing. And the way that we can support kids with self-esteem at that point is identify where they're struggling, um, tell them that it's okay. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to fail. That's fine. Uh, let's set up challenges. And as adults, we can help them with that. And then... As they build toward a success that way, that's what you recognize. You recognize the effort. You recognize the authentic um, achievement that they make along the way. So that way their self-esteem is real. It's not based on something we artificially give to them. It's on something that they legitimately earn. And that way you kind of respect the process. I mean, there's things like, uh, you know, and this is probably the sports side of me overreacting to it. But you'll see games where it's like, we're not keeping score. It's like, well, why are you not keeping score? What's Why are we playing? Because first of all, Eric, I know that, you know, your kids have been in sports and we've, we've been doing sports care. You're an athlete growing up. You know, you can tell me that you're not keeping score, but every parent in those stands knows exactly who's winning and exactly who's losing. Yes. And 
and and I don't think we're we're doing anybody any favors by saying, um, well, we're just not going to tell them they're losing because if they lose, their feelings are going to be hurt. Well, you shouldn't be happy about losing. I mean, you shouldn't beat yourself up and dwell on it, but you should understand there was a reason for this failure. Now, where do we go? And that's where the growth and that's where the recognition and that's where the self-esteem comes. I think we've all experienced, uh, you know, our self-esteem comes from not being able to do something and then being able to do it later through hard work. And, and, and that's kind of where my position between the everybody gets a trophy and no, let's make it authentic. That's where the mind shift had come. Well, and, you know, I from my experience, most kids or, or adults, for that matter, that you talk to, where did they learn that, right? Yeah. More often than not, it, it was not necessarily in the classroom. It was on a field somewhere, right? Or in a court somewhere. They learned it through uh, having mentors and coaches and athletes and teams and learning about competition and winning and losing and growth mindset and all those things. More often than not, I find that adults will tell you that they learned that. In sports, so I actually yeah. think a sport a sport analogy is, is yeah. really so, appropriate. So now, yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of of everybody gets a trophy. Um, inauthentic uh, recognition uh, to spare hurt feelings. I mean, I don't like people getting their feelings hurt, but there's a time where you, you shouldn't feel good about the result of something, and obviously you don't quit. Um, but your self esteem is going to come when when you persevere through that. And there's a sort of tension that comes with losing or not getting the outcome that you wanted right and, and oftentimes that tension creates motivation to, to yeah, i hate to, to lose you better. i don't know what you're talking about oh yeah i don't like to lose <laughs> no, <laughs> no and um it, this really uh i really started thinking deeply about it when i went to a conference uh when i was a teacher uh, and the presenter was alfie Cohn, who wrote a book called punished by rewards and, and it kind of stemmed from there uh that you don't want to be bribing kids into good behavior you no. want to set up circumstances to where they're going to do that for the right reasons mm-hmm. um and we could probably do a whole episode on that but that Carrots was kind of sticks. yeah, yeah that, that's where the that's where the seed was planted um was at that conference when alfie Cohn was the keynote speaker and it's like you know what he's got a point here and kind of well, we, could, we could talk about this for days but i think you know it, it's a very difficult shift you know coming from the perspective of education because us and our parents and their parents all grew up in a school system that was very much for the most part reliant on rewards and incentives to get kids to do Right. what they're supposed to do or do the right yes. thing right and trying to shift that mindset it, it's it's not as easy as it sounds because you're really shifting the culture of a, a generation multiple generations that grew up one way and trying to make that shift i know for us you know working with parents sometimes and helping them understand that we're looking at changing value systems and intrinsic motivation versus just offering trinkets and rewards yeah. shifting that perspective for your parents your kids and your staff it's it's it takes time and it's, yeah. it's not easy. And nobody likes seeing our kids upset. Right. Uh, you know, if they lose a game or, or they're really getting um, failure after failure or struggling with something, nobody likes to see that. But but the short-term fix of, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter anyway, that lo- that has long-term consequences that, that I don't think we can ignore. Yeah, sure. Agreed. All right, I think you're up. Yeah. Chris, My, you have a question for Carrie? I got a question for Carrie. I can't wait to hear the answer <clears throat> to this one. Um being a music guy, you know, with my background in music, I, I had to go with a music question. What three songs spark specific memories in your life? Nursery rhymes don't count. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even think of a nursery rhyme right now. Okay, so it's interesting because I think music often gets me through difficult times. And I, music is often my go-to if I'm actually upset. So I didn't want to really share any of those experiences okay. with anybody. Um, but I also started thinking about, okay, what are what are positive memories and experiences I have um, evoked from music? And I remember um, one of my first memories is actually 1970s, parents driving down the highway in one of those giant old school vans. And it was a beat up van. They bought it used. And it had holes in the bottom of the actual van itself. Oh, so you geez. could look through the holes so like and see the frame. <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> Not big enough for my feet to help my parents get where they needed to be. Um, and I, that memory with my parents, no seatbelts, of course. And uh, the back seats were kind of like a home-built couch out of wood, but no cushions whatsoever. So you never wanted to sit there. So you're just crawling around on the metal bottom of the van and my parents used to blast hotel california of course it's a great memory because you're with your parents Mm -hmm. not very many people probably have that experience with that van driving down the road with the holes in it but you know i didn't come from a rich home (laughs) my parents have made it a long way but back then you know people had to uh work really hard to get cars which were way cheaper then too so hotel california is the third best rock song ever recorded behind only stairway to heaven and bohemian rhapsody just my opinion just my opinion. 
I appreciate that. All right, song number two. Song number two and three actually go together with one memory. Um, teenager, middle school, um, visiting one of my friends at her dad's house. We are in the, we're at the bottom. So it was a two-story house. And the second story was really the top story. So you had to go down, kind of like a basement in California style. Um, and we were down there with our boom box, her boom box. And we had cassette players. Everyone look that up if you're younger. And the you're fact that you said boom this. box, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. tells us something. Exactly. And we had to, we did not have the words to any of the lyrics of the songs we wanted to learn. So we had to put the cassette tape in, rewind, <laughs> play it, write the words down, rewind. I remember. Play it right where the words down. The struggle was real. And we memorized and um, created a dance to You Be Illin um, by Run uh, DMC and Paul Revere. And I still know a lot of those words, by the way, um, by Beastie Boys. I love, and not all of those, those songs are appropriate probably for an educational podcast, but I absolutely loved doing that. I, don't, I think we were up past probably one o'clock in the morning just getting that all down. Being was a personal favorite of my childhood as well. Yes. Very well. Yes. Small and fry. again, I'm feeling older than ever. Big, Big Mac. Mac. Absolutely. Mm. Gave a quarter in his order. Small fry. <laughs> Once again, it, it is pointed out in the podcast that Chris is the oldest one in the room. <laughs> <laughs> you got one more song, I think. Or you said no, you two were together. Yeah. together. So, mm-hmm. all right, Carrie, your question for Eric. What's one critical piece of feedback you've received that was really difficult to hear? Why was it difficult? And what did you do with that information? What did you learn about yourself? Okay, so the first thing I'd like to say, that was like four questions in a row. <laughs> you got to talk about songs. I have to talk about critical feedback. I, I'm pretty sure that was the easiest question I'm going to get today. So. All right, so I'll try to hit all the points. So, um... This is one that now Carrie and I have dialogue about. In fact, we just had a conversation about this recently because this is a piece of feedback I got about a year ago, and I still carry it with me because I struggle with it, which is part of the question. So it all started when um, both Carrie and I Mm -hmm. were asked to give a board presentation about um, some of the things going on in our school. We were talking about specifically social-emotional learning and some of the work that we've done with our staff to try to move the needle uh, on that topic here at our school. And after the presentation, uh, by and large, positive feedback, thank you, great job, pats on the back, all those good things. But, you know, one of the things about feedback is one of the most important factors is who's giving the feedback, right? And so if it's somebody that you highly respect and admire and all those things, it makes it that much more critical or not critical, but more impactful, I guess is the right word. And so um, one of our bosses uh, Mm. pulled me aside at one point and said, Great job, great presentation. Uh, The one piece of feedback I have for you is, instead of saying my school, it's about us and our. And, you know, partly because of who it was, immediately I just, you know, a little bit of crush. Like, I was just crushed. Like, oh, my gosh. Um, She didn't like what I had to say. Um, You know, I I just felt really, really bad. And so you kind of work through that, right? And you get past the point where you can actually reflect on it and think about it, take it. take it to heart versus just feeling hurt or whatever. And um, so long story short, that was over a year ago, I think at this point. And to this day, I still struggle with that one because I know, and Karen and I talk about this, I know what it means to me when I say my, to me, it means it's a very much a term of endearment. Like I take collective responsibility for this school and this staff and the people that work here and the kids and the families. So to me, it means something totally different. But I've also, with Carrie's help, had to reflect on how it's taken by other people and how it might be perceived by other people when they hear me say my. Um, and for some people, it could be an exclusive term, right? Like I'm excluding yeah. them because I'm talking about me versus us. And, you know, the, and also part of it is because I know the people that know me the, the, the best know my intention. And well, know- and if I could offer you some encouragement on that, because it really is something that always, I always pick up on that when I'm hearing administrators or leaders, when they say my teachers or my students, it, it it's off putting to me to hear it. Uh, but it, it doesn't mean that everybody's painting with the same brush because when I've heard you say that, I know from working with you for almost 20 years that you are about as inclusive as a principal as I've ever worked with. So you, that's not, and I'm glad that you were able to say it that way. Cause now, it, mm. now I understand where, what it means to you. Right. Um, 
But I know where your heart is, and I've never questioned that. But I, on the other hand of that, I do know some administrators that when they say my, that's what they mean, because right. that's their philosophy. This is my school. These are my teachers. And to me, that's not a good thing. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it is something for sure to be aware of. And and yeah, because that's certainly not who you are. You're about as inclusive as it gets. So Yeah, but it, it was a lesson for me. So, you know, answering the question, what did I do with that piece of feedback? It, it, it's It's a... It's on a continuum of growth, right? It's not like I didn't just flip the switch and stop doing it. It's habit. It's a habit. Right. I still do it, and I try to catch myself and reflect on that, and just looking at it from the perspective of other people's perspective. Like yeah. other people might hear that differently, and just being sensitive to that and being aware of that. Um, and it's not about the school board or the environment I was in. It's in any environment. Um, you know, I may say it from time to time, and I know what it means to me, but I have to be sensitive, especially if I'm trying to build culture and build connection amongst my community. I have to be sensitive to the fact that that might be taken a different way. Um, so for me, what did I do with it? I'm just trying to be more aware and more present with the words I choose when I say things and make sure that that what I'm saying reflects my heart, if that makes sense. And every time you say my, I'm handing my keys from now on and I'm getting ready to walk out. <laughs> Not true. Some, some kind, some kind of signal, you know, yes. tug your ear or something okay, like that. Okay, it's your school. I'm out. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we won't get into how I asked Carrie to be part of that presentation about 30 oh. minutes before it started. Or please don't. Yeah. Well, she is your assistant start, principal. She is I, my I, <laughs> assistant I principal. I do. I start to twitch every time I think about it. But it's made a great memory. Is it, hasn't it though? We and have that we, to share. It's we, our memory. We connected that day, and it was it was an experience only we shared. It was great. I digress. Yeah. Chris. All right. Actually, you. no, this is for you. Did I we, skip? We, we go back to back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Seriously? So <laughs> mine's, mine's a little less um, deep, I think. Uh, my question for you, Eric, is who is your childhood best friend and what's your favorite memory with him or her? So the first part of that question is really easy. You know, I have a friend that I'm still very close friends with today. Um, I shall still share stories with Carrie about this person because we've literally been friends since kindergarten and we're still connected. I was talking to him this morning. Um, his name is Jeff and he was and is my best friend and has been my entire life. And I know how rare it is that you grow up with somebody and you stay connected on that level into well into adulthood right. and you go through adult trials and tribulations, successes and share families and all those things. Um, but he is by far my best friend. We met in school. Um, he is one of the most selfless, um, caring, big hearted people I have ever met. And he's gone through a lot in his life too, but he's, he's always managed to come out and talk because he is willing to work at it. He recently, well, a few years ago now became a registered nurse, kind of a lifetime goal for him, but he did that and he's still in school. Um, so I admire him for a lot of reasons. But one of the things is he is so other centered, you know, and a second to my mom, he's probably one of the people that I've learned the most from and just always, you know, servant leadership and looking out for others and really, you know, why am I here? What's my purpose? And my purpose is to serve others. Quick example of that the other night, you know, he, he now lives in Arizona, so we don't get to see each other nearly as often. But um, he posted on Facebook that he um, has a Santa Claus outfit. And for any families in the community that want Santa to do a COVID safe drive by, give me a call. It's, that's just who he is. I mean, no, he just wants awesome. to do things to brighten other people's day. And, and uh, you know, nursing is such a great fit for him because it really is such a uh, a selfless, heartfelt kind of, you know, notion to be a nurse and serve others in that way, especially now, yeah. obviously. But the second part of the question is harder because being that we've known each other for better than 40 years, tons of great memories. Um, you know, a couple that come to mind. <laughs> I'm going to pick on him a little bit because, uh, you know, this one time he, he had this little uh, blue Datsun truck in high school. And he had decided that he the truck needed to be waxed. And so I come over to his house, and the truck is coated in car wax. He had, you know, bumper to bumper. He had right. gone around, put the wax on, got tired, decided, oh, I'll just clean it off later. <laughs> and uh, I was like, uh, dude, that's not how wax works. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, the wax wouldn't come off. And uh, it was a, a painstaking effort to get the wax off the car because he thought, well, I'll just wax it today and clean it off tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but that truck had lots of great memories there was a uh, an aqueduct by our house and when it rained behind the aqueduct there was a long dirt road that would fill with water and so there was a road and there was this trench of water and we would go out there with his truck and a pair of water skis and a, a ski rope we would tie the ski rope to the bumper in about i don't know maybe six inches of water and we would ski behind his truck along this muddy murky Dirty God knows what was in their water <laughs> that had been stagnant for days back and forth. 
when we should have been at school, but that's another right, that's story. story. Um, so yeah, I mean, just tons. I mean, laying out and uh, sleeping in his backyard under the stars, yeah. and you know, lawn mowing business together, and so many great memories. Am I remembering laughing. right? Is is this the same person that you worked for the San Bernardino Spirit with? Yes. Okay. So yeah, yeah. I think I told that story. Him and I walked in there one day looking for a job, fifteen and a half, and we're like, "Hey, you guys got any jobs?" And the guy comes out and says, "We have one. You guys can split it." So our first job, literally, you took the home season of the spirit, the schedule, and we split it in half. I worked one game, he worked in it. So yeah, I mean, I could go for days, but uh, great friendship. I'm so lucky to have him, and tons of great stories. A lot probably which I couldn't tell here. I have a connection (laughs) to that story. Um, In high school, high desert snow wakeboard behind a nissan sentra there you go oh yeah good times they Probably had dangerous a... <laughs> but really good and teenagers driving and pulling mm-hmm. you with on your uh week oh that's bad you know it's near so uh dangerous. cal state san Bernardino, there's a, a road that you go up, up towards the hills it's a it's a hill it's a paved road but it goes up very steep and then drops suddenly <laughs> and his truck had a you ready for this carpet kit you remember these yeah and mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they're still around. I don't see them as much, yeah. but during the 80s, it was all the rage, right? You put a carpet kit in the bed of your truck. And so it would carpet the the bed of your truck, and there was storage, and there were shelves, and, um, you know, people could ride back there because in those times, it wasn't illegal to ride in the back of the truck. We actually rode in the back of the truck all the way to Sacramento on a camping trip with his family. That's another story. But one of our favorite pastimes was to lay in the back of his truck, like lay flat on your back in the bed of the truck, and he would hit that hill as fast as he could we would levitate so you hit the top of the hill there was a brief moment when the truck would zero drop gravity. and you would come up at zero gravity it's like and you know like how i'm still here i don't know it'll be the up chuck truck exactly go. perfect yeah so uh yeah I, I, I could go on for days but good 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 times make sure your kids don't listen to no this don't try this at home no all right carrie your question you get to ask i get to ask you a question yes so, Chris, what's the difference between someone who is great in your role versus someone who is outstanding? I love that question because it is there is a distinction. You can be great and you can be outstanding. So I, I've given this a lot of thought, and of course it's going to boil into a sports analogy at some point. Um, but, you know, to put it as simply as I can, it comes down to impact. I think you can be great in isolation. You can be great in a narrow perspective, but to truly be outstanding – you have to be able to impact others, whatever context you're in, whether it's teaching, whether it's sports, whether it's leadership. Um, if you're not impacting the greater good, then I don't think you can possibly be outstanding. But you can be great. Um, it's also about an enduring legacy. So the sports analogy I want to start with, um, it, it's hockey related. So um, I, I apologize to any of our listeners who aren't hockey fans. But uh, I think by any metric, Wayne Gretzky is the most outstanding hockey player that's ever existed. The records that he set, he broke the records in about half the time uh, that it had taken the previous record holders to set them. I mean, he was just so much better um, than anybody else. But even if you ask him, there was not one aspect of playing hockey that he was the best in the league at. He didn't have a real powerful shot. He was not big at all he's like 5'11 maybe a buck 85 not a big guy not the fastest skater um but the complete package he always made his teammates better um there are there are players who had a mediocre career before they played with Gretzky when they're on his team they had the best years of the career and then when one or the other moved on they went back to how they were before um you won't get any argument. And, you know, I would say, and there's a little bit of bias because he played for the Los Angeles Kings and I'm a hockey fan. I don't think there's ever been as dominant a player in any sport than Wayne Gretzky in the National Hockey League just because of the distance between him and everybody else. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, or so Gretzky would be my example of outstanding. Uh, there was a player named Brett Hall, played for St. Louis, played for Detroit, um, played for Dallas. One of the best pure goal scorers in history. In fact, I think he's got the second highest goal total uh, for one season behind only Gretzky. Gretzky has the record with 92. I think Hall scored 86 uh, when he played with St. Louis one year. Um, no, Great goal scorer, but I don't think if you asked hockey experts, name the five most outstanding hockey players of all time, Hall's not going to be on that list. He's probably not going to be in the top 10 um, because he was uh, relatively one-dimensional. 
Um, he was a great goal scorer, but his defense was, to put kindly, lacking. Um, there's a stat in hockey called plus minus, uh, which um, is is designed to show your overall impact. It's how many more or fewer goals did your team score while you were on the ice. So if a player for a season is plus 37, it means he was on the ice for 37 more goals scored for them than his team had given up. Uh, Hull won. You following all this? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Sorry, I'm right. You're looking at me. I will have you it was her know question. that hockey is actually one of my favorite sports, yeah. but one of the things that I'm not good at is memorizing everything about sports. I do not yeah. regurgitate it the way you do. I admire you both for that. No, not but, both. That's him. That's him. But I actually went to Kings games, and one of the last games that – it has always stood in my memory is uh, Gretzky and McSorley. And oh, that was Marty. the first time I saw blood hit the Marty. ice. And I felt like I had fallen in love with the sport on that moment. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> sport. So um, to finish up on the, the Brett Hull story, there was one year where he was among the goal leaders, but he was a minus player, which means that in spite of scoring as many goals as he did, he was still on the ice for more goals scored against his team than for him. So I don't think... Great he offense. Horrible yeah, defense. Yeah, exactly. In fact, to tie it into baseball, he had um and he wasn't real big at setting up his his teammates for assists either. There there's a stat or it's it's kind of said in condescension if a hockey player is a Cy Young candidate, mm-hmm. it means he'll have like twenty goals and five assists. So if he's right, like twenty yeah. and five, which is great if you're a major league pitcher, but you know, if you're a hockey player, twenty goals, five assists means you're shooting the puck a lot and you're not passing very much. Right. So um as far as the question goes, Gretzky would be outstanding while Hull would be great. Um when we look at that in, in teaching, I, I think you can be a great teacher in isolation. Uh, you know, if, if you're the, you're a teacher that stays in your class, focuses 100% on your kids, nobody's going to argue with that. You give great instruction, your your strategies, technology, all of that is, is fantastic. Your students are going to remember you forever, um, and, and that's just what you do. You can be a great teacher, but I think to truly be outstanding, you have to do all those things, maybe not to that level. You have to be proficient in everything uh, to be outstanding. You don't have to be the best at anything, but you have to be very proficient across the board. So to be an outstanding teacher, you'd have to provide all of that great instruction, but you're also going to be collaborative with your teammates. You're also going to be working with the community. You're also going to be contacting parents and building those relationships, building a legacy, uh, so that when when you leave the school, some of the things that you brought in are going to stay. And the same thing goes for us in administration. Um, I think you can be a great administrator and be the Brett Hall of principalships if you're if you're one of the best on one dimension, you can do great things. If, if you're like an absolute expert on curriculum or on culture or on special education, you're going to have a significant impact in that way, but you're always going to have to support yourself with people who are great in those other things. Whereas if you're knowledgeable on everything um, and have a greater impact in the community, I think that's what, that's what makes uh, someone outstanding in the way that that's measured is how successful is their team or their company or their school after they leave. Have they been able to, uh, to enact change that's going to outlast them and build a legacy. And I think to be outstanding, that's what you have to do. So that was a great question. That was a great, great answer. answer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And you um, know, the one thing I picked up on was Wayne Gretzky because that's an English Yeah, name. no, he's, yeah, it's. You didn't follow anything else though until he got back to teaching. <laughs> well, I, I mean, just, just, just for one, one small example, uh, Gretzky's the all-time points leader, which where they combine goals and assists. He would be the all-time points leader if, you take away all his goals and he scored almost 900 in his career. If you eliminate all of his goals and just measure his assists, he's got more assists than any other player in history has goals and assists combined. And it's by a significant margin. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, even to the not hockey fan, which I I know hockey, I I wouldn't call myself a fan. Gretzky is the one that is that household name that everybody knows. And for good reason. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, I I think Chris's last statement though speaks to trust. He had a lot of trust, obviously in his teammates. Yeah, very unselfish. Very, and that was from the time he was a kid. So, all right, I think, I think we got one more to go. Is yeah. it my turn? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm excited for this. Oh one. no, this. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't. I I don't like the part where we actually answer two questions in a row. <laughs> I, I want to take credit for this question, but I did not write this question. I this is your this revenge. Question. There for might the there might be a question. long pause here. <laughs> to cut pause. It out. That's all right. There may be more than one pause. Carrie. Tell me about a time when you really screwed something up. <laughs> how did you handle it, and how did you address your mistake? 
this one is difficult because I feel like I'm constantly trying to not screw things up. Um, I think that there have been, there's been a specific moment with, between the two of us where I felt like I had really screwed up. So we'll talk about that. Oh boy. Maybe, you know what? That way we don't have to take calls in from other principals about (laughs) their side of my story. Um, I think that there was a time when you and I had a very difficult dialogue. I was right to close the door so that we could have the difficult dialogue. Um, but I immediately, you were sharing a complaint, I think, about something I had done on campus, I believe, in regards to interaction with an employee. And my knee-jerk reaction was defensiveness. And so I I think the way that I screwed up was I made it personal. The way that I screwed up was I, I got hurt immediately by it. I didn't see it as an opportunity to grow, but rather proof that I was failing if that makes sense. And I, I, I don't know that I enjoy failure. I know that it's necessary for growth, but my knee-jerk reaction in that moment is just, you know, not being good enough. And I, I didn't like that feeling. And so I ended up in my defensiveness raising my voice and I, I think you matched it, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. And um, so definitely didn't handle it well, but I ended up taking some time and taking some space and reflecting on it, and then once I felt that I'd given you time and space, I went to you respectfully and asked you if I could have a difficult conversation, if we could dialogue, and if you could help me grow in that area of um, not that knee-jerk reaction of, of going defensive as opposed to just learning and growing um, from that experience. I think that's human nature, right? I, <clears throat> you know, I think probably both Chris and I can relate to everything you just said because you know, that's the, I think you define the difference between taking, you know, constructive feedback and taking it as a failure. When I, when I identify what you're telling me as a failure, that is the definition of defensive, right? It's like, I failed mm-hmm. you. I failed this role. I failed somehow. And that is very painful. And I think we've all been there probably multiple times. Um, and, but I appreciate what you said about, you know, that notion of time and space, right? You know, an example I shared earlier it's taking me a lot of time and a lot of space to be able to truly reflect on that from a constructive perspective and not just, I screwed up. I, you know, potentially let somebody down or said something that was damaging to somebody somewhere and move from that to, okay, how do I grow from this and how do I move? So, Well, and it's interesting. I, I'm going to be a little bit more vulnerable here. I think that part of my identity has been created in the educational system um, through my being retained as a child. And in that, in being retained, that narrative of not being good enough, not being smart enough, often comes back and plays into an insecurity um, piece for me. And so I have to be very self-aware. And when I start to feel defensive, I have to ask myself where it's coming from. And it often goes back to what I've perceived as an initial failure. Um, and, and I know better. Because that I was a child, <laughs> so but again, um, just being mindful, I think, um, also helps me work through those mistakes, and also having a boss that's willing to listen and help me grow. So yeah, thanks for of, that. And kind of what uh, you were saying, Eric. I mean, I think we all have. Uh, I know, speaking for myself, a certain amount of defensiveness. Uh, I was listening to a, a podcast. Uh, I think it was Dax Shepard's podcast where he was interviewing uh, Bradley Whitford, uh, an actor. And Bradley Whitford was talking about receiving critical feedback, and he said he always goes through three steps. Yes. Um, and yes. I'm, go- I'm, go- I'm going to paraphrase his exact <laughs> words for a G-rated uh, it also, podcast. It also doesn't appear in uh, Mike Robbins' book yeah. as well. Um, yeah, example. Mike Robbins talks about it, but I think he's citing the same podcast where he'll, um, Bradley Whitford will get some critical feedback, and his first response is, well, screw you. Yeah. And then his second one is, well, I suck. And then the third one is, now what? And it's kind of that cycle. First, you blame. He uses different. Uh, he did. Yeah, I, I, I cleaned yeah. it up a little bit. Um, but you know, the first, you know, your first reaction is, "Who's this jerk trying to tell me what to do?" And the second one is to overreact. The pendulum swings the other way. It's like, "Well, I must be horrible." And then you kind of come back to center, and say, "Okay, what am I going to do with that feedback?" I think mine might be opposite. I think my first reaction might be, "I screwed up," and then my second one might be, "You." <laughs> and then way. I find my balance. I wonder if it's like the stages of grief. Maybe it's not linear, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 between them yeah it's it's the pendulum of grief I, I, I mean i can certainly say going back to my example from earlier i mean you and i had a dialogue about this the other day and 
in our dialogue about my use of the word my, mm -hmm. even now, a year later, my first reaction was defensiveness. Like, but people just don't understand me. Right. They don't understand yeah. what I mean by that, right? Yeah. And so I can definitely see it as kind of a, a back and forth between those. Yep. If anything goes wrong, it's my head. It's my head in the smasher. All right. So this brings us to our next uh, uh, portion of our podcast here. And so for today's topic, uh, we're going to talk about weird stories, right? Because we yeah. talk often, at least in this circle, about just how weird and unpredictable and funny and challenging this role can be as school administration, right? So we've all yeah. got tons of stories. So our challenge today is just to pick one. <laughs> yeah. What's your weirdest story <laughs> from being an administrator at school? I'm sure it's difficult to choose. Um, but Chris, do you want to go first? You yeah. want to talk about your story? Yeah, uh, this one is affectionately known in, in my inner circle as the Takis Incident of 2015. I love how he always has titles. Oh, there's got to be a title for it. Uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, Takis are a kind of chip. It's like Doritos, um, but Takis is a specific brand. Comes into play later. If you work in a public school, you know what Takis are. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so I kind of got to tell a story to set up the Takis story. Because right. um, it relates to the same student in the same family. Uh, so there's a student who uh, I'll call Jason, not his real name. We're changing to protect the guilty. Um, and oh, he was guilty. Um, it, it was a student who I had, had several run-ins uh, with uh, during his time at, at our school. And as a result of that, I had a um, series of run-ins with his grandmother, uh, with whom he lived. So there was one incident where Jason and a couple of other kids had committed an infraction that I could have suspended them for. Some would say I should have suspended them for. But because of the history, I wanted to kind of give uh, give the kids, especially Jason, the benefit of the doubt because Jason had a history of not always being honest in certain situations when he was in trouble. So because I felt like he had been completely honest in this particular situation, then we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. We're not going to suspend any of the kids. We're going to do more of a SEL base, make restitution on campus, keep him in class and do it all that way. However, I did have uh, Officer Bacher from our school police department, ironically, our last guest, um, was part of the conversation that we had uh, with the kids and with the parents involved. So when it came to Jason, we had grandma come in and I explained the situation and said, we're not going to suspend him, um, but we are going to do this. She says, oh, he's not getting suspended? And no, he's not getting suspended, feeling, you know, I'm going to extend an olive branch to grandma too. She goes, oh, well, what about the other kids? Are they getting suspended? He goes, no, we're not, we're not suspending anyone. She goes, oh, I get it. I'm like, well, what, do, what do you mean you get it? Well, you like those other kids better than you like Jason. So if you suspended them, you'd have, to, you know, if you suspended him, you'd have to suspend them. I'm there. No, that that's not correct. We're giving them the benefit of the doubt. No, this is just because you don't like him and you like them better. I'm there. No, you're incorrect. He goes, well, that's my opinion. And I'm like, well, now I'm going to pause the story here to let, <laughs> to let our listeners know that sometimes I'm just a dog chasing cars. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to successfully explain to grandma the difference between opinion and fact, especially in this setting. There comes but, a point in these conversations where you realize, at this point, I probably should just walk away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this wasn't that point for you. That's not my nature. Um, so, so I'm going to make this a learning experience, if not for her, certainly for me. Um, and I said, uh, excuse me, but it's, it's not, you can't, that's not your opinion. You're, you're misstating fact. I know for a fact that there's no way that I would have suspended any of the three kids for the reasons I outlined. Well, I think you would have, and that's my opinion. That's not what an opinion is. You're stating it as a fact, but your fact is wrong. He goes, no, I have a right to my opinion. I'm there. All right, let me give you an example. Take a look at Officer Bacher here. I could say hmm. that Officer Bacher is seven feet five and has formerly played for the New York Knicks in the NBA uh, and is wearing clown shoes, uh, you know, in a prom dress. I'm clearly wrong. And at this point, Officer Bacher is trying not to laugh. And he's kind of looking at me like, where are you going with this? Um, so He wasn't kicking you under the table. No, no. He was, you know, I'm the dog. He's letting me run with the leash, apparently. Yeah. Um, so I said, I can say that's my opinion, and but I'm wrong. I'm stating it as a fact that's incorrect. And that's kind of what you're doing. He goes, well, it's my opinion. You're not going to change my mind on it. I'm like, all right, fine. So I, I lost that battle. So I told you that story to tell you this one. Uh, about a year later... Um, grandma calls me one morning. It's like 7.30 in the morning. I get a call. Uh, my secretary says, um, Jason's grandma's on the phone. She wants to talk to you. I'm like, oh, what fresh hell is this? Um, so 
because I hadn't had him in the office for a while. I was like, all right, what's going on? So she calls him and says, Mr. Margaret, I need your I need your help on something. I'm like, oh, all right. Build a relationship. She goes, we think that Jason stole $50 from his grandfather's wallet this morning. He's already on his way to school. Could you call him in and question him? Now, I need to be perfectly clear at this point that this incident is clearly outside of my jurisdiction. I don't have any obligation to investigate $50 from grandpa's wallet, but if I can help grandma, sure. I said, all right, I'll call him in. I'll see what I can do. So I call Jason in and I say, Jason, do you have any money on you right now? He goes, yeah. And this was like into the school. It wasn't right away. It had been a few hours into the school day by the time I got around to it. So um, do you have any money? He goes, yeah. Let me see. So he puts like $37 on my desk. Some ones. I'm like, all right, where'd you get that money? And I could see the brain working. And there's a certain amount of genius in play here. <laughs> because where I think his mind went is like, well, I can't, can't cop the stealing money from grandpa because I'm going to get in a world of trouble for that. But I got to cop the something. So he says, I was selling Takis, which is against our school rules. Kids can't sell things independently. Um, but yeah, all right. So he's confessing to a lesser crime. Brilliant in its own sort of way. Um, so I said, who did you sell them to? He said, um, the other kids. And they're, well, where'd you get them? So I bought them at the store. And you're selling them for how much? Dollar each. It's like, all right, you got $37 there? You have any leftover Takis? Where, where, are, the, where are the ones you haven't sold yet? He said, oh, I sold them all. I'm like, you bought them in a pack of 37? That's interesting. He goes, no, no I, just, I just want to. Where's the, where's the bag that you carried them to school in? Threw it away in the trash can. It's like, oh, well, let's go look at the trash can. He goes, oh, I'm not sure. They might have blown away. I'm like, all right. Story's kind of crumbling beneath <laughs> his feet here. So I said, Who, who'd you sell them to? Oh, the other kids in fourth grade. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, so if I go to class now, Jason, and I walk to each of the classrooms, and I ask kids who bought Takis from Jason, they're going to raise their hand. He goes, well, they probably lie about it. I'm like, no, I'll make it clear that they're not in any trouble. So we did that. So we went to the first class. We had four fourth grade classes that year. So I go to the first class. Hey, nobody's going to get in any trouble. Just raise your hand if Jason sold you a, a bag of Takis this morning. Nobody raised their hand. I'm like, Jason? He goes, well, they must be in the other classes. I'm like, all right. So we go to the second class. He, you know, it's like, we're going to run this out. I'm running the ground ball out at this point. It's like, all right, we go to the next class. Same deal. At any point, are you looking at Jason like, I know you're not going to make me go to every class. Oh, I had no <laughs> doubt he was going to make me go to every class. There was no doubt in my mind. He had gone this far. He's just going to ride this. Oh, yeah. Right? You, you've heard of the phrase, the hill to die on. This was his hill to die on. <laughs> um, so we go to the second class. Of course, same thing there. Okay, so we got two more to go. Well, they must all be in there and there. Okay, the law of averages is against you, but all right. Uh, so we go. Uh, same thing. Third class, fourth fourth class. Nobody had bought any Takis from Jason. Now, Jason, come on, man. Just tell me where you got the money. He goes, I was selling Takis. So, all right. So we go back to the office. I figure I've, I've done my due diligence. I've got enough evidence. Um, obviously, he took the $50. He bought something on the way to school or, as kids tend to do, gave a bunch of it to his friends. They tend to do that. Mm -hmm. um, share the guilt, so to speak. So I figure I can call grandma now with some happy news. I've solved the, I've, you know, I've solved her problem at the cost of 13 bucks. So I call her on the phone. I said, all right, well, just talk to, talk to Jason. Uh, he's got $37 on him. And he says he got that from selling Takis at school. Now I've talked to other kids. I've kind of questioned him about it. I don't think in your that, mind you've gone above and beyond. Oh, wait, yeah, this isn't anything that happened at school. With all the information they could absolutely, ever need. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so I said, uh, I think you know we've got it solved. I, I think I can pretty safely say that um, he wasn't selling Takis. It was indeed Grandpa's um, money. So she goes, "Well, how do you know he wasn't selling Takis?" I'm like, um, "I've asked, I've asked other students. He didn't really know who he was selling him to." He goes, "Are you calling him a liar?" I'm like. Well, you're calling him a thief. Uh, I mean, and, and for one split second, and what makes this story so weird, it's the only time in my career in administration or in education, I forgot what side of the argument was I was on. It's like, do I want him to have sold the talkie? Did he sell it? Who's, I was so bamboozled that, you know, I finally just kind of panicked. And I said, you know what? I'm telling you, he took the money from grandpa's wallet. And that's my opinion. And my opinion can't be wrong. You so did then. not bring it back around to opinion. <laughs> so that you kept the, that in the holster for a while. That's didn't the you? talkie story, and I'm sticking to it. It's my opinion, and my opinion can't be wrong. Oh my gosh! 
So, all right, who's up next? <laughs> it says it's me. You know, it's kind of interesting. I think there's a lot of entertaining stories that we get to share probably almost on a daily basis. And Carrie's just going to have some kind of valuable learning no, experience. No, it's not. It. It's just bizarre. And and I'm tempted to not share it because it's just <laughs> so weird. Um, I was actually working for you at the time, Chris, and I was teaching um, fifth grade with your I'm going to pause AP. you for one second. Yes. You were working with me, not for me. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I was working with you. And your AP, Christy, um, was on my teacher team. And she had a student in her class who was this adorable um, sweet girl, never in trouble. Um, I remember Christy and I would be on duty with our other teachers. And I remember saying hi to this student, checking in on the student. Cause Christy had told me she was having some issues at home. And, um, next thing I know, I, I get a phone call from a woman who claims to be that little girl's parent, her mom. And she starts telling me about how her husband, they're estranged actually, so they're split, has told her that I'm picking on her daughter in an effort to get back with him because we dated in high school and I haven't stopped being in love with him. This really happened and I never told you this story. You don't want your new boss to think you're crazy. So, and right now I feel like you're looking at me like I'm crazy, but it's not my fault. Um, and so I just listened to the woman. I was like, "Who? who is your husband? And the other thing you need to know about, I didn't date in high school. Um, so in my mind, I'm like, what are we talking about here? And I end up setting up a conference with the dad um, to meet with him. And I sit down with them. First off, he's easily 10 years younger than me. So I know there's no way in, in God's creation that we have managed to actually date each other. At some point, did you think that, hmm, maybe? And I was really, oh my gosh, no, I didn't at all. There was a lot to that. And I remember, I remember planning to have the conference in the cafeteria because I wanted there to be able to be witnesses. I didn't want to be alone in the room because I just thought the whole thing was bizarre. Um, but he goes on to tell me how he he's so sorry. And he was so fidgety. He couldn't sit still. He's so sorry that um, he had made the whole story up and he'll correct it with his ex-wife. It's just that they're going through some things and and this is how he felt at the time. He and he somehow thought story. that would help? Absolutely. And I never heard from either one of them again. Um, and I kind of kept my distance from the poor yeah. old student because oh, I, I felt like she was in a tug of war. But yeah, that was that was great conversation for Christy and I because it was her student. So I don't know oh, if she recalls that. But that was I, I think that classifies as weird, does it That's not? very weird. Creepy also, maybe a little, a little bit. bit? Okay. A little bit. There you go. I love I love Eric's face. I wish everybody could see it. <laughs> no, his head is in his hands. Like, well, did that really happen? Our relationship has grown so much. So and, weird. and you and I both have shared so much, and that's just one that I hadn't heard before. So, Well, now yeah. that we're doing a podcast, I've yeah. got to save all these up. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm going to preface mine with, you know, a little self-deprecation. I am not the storyteller, Chris is. I, um, you know, he can remember facts and dates and conversations better than I can. So I'm going to overgeneralize. But the story I want to tell, not as much weird as it was just shocking, but you were part of it. So hopefully you can help me with some of the facts. Because as I just said, I am not uh, as as good at, at, at Does it involve memories. anybody I dated? No. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> No, it, it's a story about a, a, an incident we had here at, at Lyme. I believe it was your, your first year here. And we had a student at that time who was in sixth grade. And we had gotten a call from the grandparent who was caring for the student at that time saying that he had some money missing, similar to your story. And the amount of money that he said he was missing was a large amount. It was not $50. I believe it was 500 Oh, if I'm not mistaken. And so we began the process of questioning the student, asking about the money, which, of course, He's denying entirely, and I and this I don't know if you remember the, what I'm talking about, but there was a point when uh, we start um, we we find out that possibly some of the money had been given out, and so we start talking to kids and we start interviewing kids, and you know I think of that scene like in the movie Rudy when all the players decide they oh. want Rudy to play in the last game and they all walk in the coach's office and throw their jerseys on the table. Yeah. Next one comes in and throws his jersey on the table. I remember that day like that. The more kids we talked to, the more money we were uncovering. It was like kids are walking in the office and throwing wads of cash on the table. <laughs> and we ended up recovering somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of this money because he had brought it to school and in an effort to, he wasn't buying or selling anything other than friendships, I believe, Aww. because in an effort to uh, you know, um, make connections with people, 
he was giving out money and like large wads of cash. It was not like we uncovered a few dollars. We had involved law enforcement because of the large amount of money. And so there was a, a moment when I also felt like, I don't know, like the Godfather. So I'm sitting here and literally I've got stacks of 20s and 10s and <laughs> on my desk. And I, I wanted somebody to take my picture, you know, like, honestly, That's right. I'm like, I don't typically have this kind of money laying around. Um, but that was definitely a weird day. And I'm looking at Carrie's confused face because maybe I'm misremembering it. It was prior to her arrival, so I might have to ask okay. another administrator. But that was certainly a wild day. I have never before then until this day seen uh, that amount of cash floating around an elementary school campus. And, uh, you know, like you said, it was certainly not within my jurisdiction. No. You're missing money at home. Um, but if I can, I'm always going to do that you know, for a parent's sake, yeah. because I would want somebody to do that for me. But uh, it was certainly a weird moment to watch all that money just keep appearing and appearing and, uh, and ultimately um, having to get school police involved because of just the magnitude of the situation. Just makes me think of what those negotiations were like. Uh, would you be my friend? Um, got $25. And you go, oh, uh, can you make it 35 yeah. Do I have to play with you at recess? Yeah, okay. Well, mm. I mean. Who knows? I'm bartering. No, but there's... Uh, it's it's a sad and poignant story in its own way too, but yeah. So yeah, a lot of weirdness uh, that we get to deal with, and I'm sure we'll be able to tip share. of the iceberg. Oh yeah, I'm I sure mean, we'll, more of our stories will come up in in future episodes. Certainly during uh, you know I can think of a few stories just during this pandemic. You know when you've got a distance learning model and kids on Zoom and some of the things that we've seen and heard even up to a few days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty wild. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is advised. All right, so that'll set up uh, our extra credit question. Uh, we've got this one's just really weird and goofy. Um, I don't even know where I came up with this one, but uh, for group discussion. Let's be honest, I don't know where you come up with most of this. Uh, yeah, so. I, I, I don't know. So, well, some, yeah, there's a lot of resources. I, know, I always picture Chris laying in bed at night and all of a sudden he goes, Chickens! <laughs> you know, Chickens and horses! Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, brilliant! Yeah, would you rather say, yeah, the duck size horse, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not as, as off base as you might think. Um, so, for this one, we're going to have a group discussion, kind of collaborative. How many chickens would it take to kill an elephant? Knowing me, my first concern was, was the elephant endangered? Aren't elephants endangered? Not from chickens, generally. <laughs> I know, but I'm, I'm not sure why you want them to be killed. It's a hypothetical question, I, I, Lewis. I understand, but I had concerns. Well, I'm not saying I want the elephant to be killed. We're just, we're just positing. <laughs> what would the, how many chickens? What do the chickens do with the elephant once it's dead? Are chickens well, aggressive? Is it going to be all for naught? Oh, are well, chickens and I think, aggressive? Oh, the uh, cockfighting, it's a whole are, thing. I have a story about ostriches. It's a whole thing. There's, there's like rooster fighting uh, all but over the place. these are just gentle little hens walking Well, around. maybe we can make it roosters and chickens. They can throw in some roosters. So. Ill-tempered roosters. No, how many ill-tempered roosters would it take? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> to kill an elephant. Is that better? Uh, yes. And let's say, let's say, I, I, I see you're struggling with this. Let's say the elephant had it coming. All right. Oh, okay. Uh, let's say the elephant deserves okay. deserves this. Yeah. I think the first thing we need to figure out is he. How could it? How could on, chickens? Yeah. How could chickens mm, kill an elephant? What would be? How could they? I mean, yeah. I mean, they're not gonna. Yes. They're not gonna eat it. Tar feather. I mean, yeah. no. <laughs> they take out their own feathers. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what about it? Throwing feathers. Or they're like stay your chickens next to the other chicken. You just grab the other chicken's feather. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, I'm out. You use your own, buddy. Oh, poke him in the eye. Yeah, it would really have to be some element of surprise. I think it'd have to be some kind of. Yeah. Uh, They'd have to ambush them. Ambush, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking because I don't know if there's enough. There is an amount of ducks that just by sheer force can overtake. What is our setting? Chickens. I need to Chickens. know Chickens. what I ducks. have ducks available. Did I say ducks? Ducks was the last yes. I need to know the setting because I need to be. Would able. it make a difference <laughs> if we said how many ducks to kill an elephant? I mean, honestly, the ducks have a flat is... bill, so I think the chicken, the pointed chicken beak. Could be a valuable weapon tool. So, so I'm thinking, I'm just going to jump in here. I think the first line of attack would have to be, they, they've got to disable the, the elephant somehow and possibly like his right. vision. Mm -hmm. so, oh, so if right. they get on top of the elephant and somehow get at the eyes, mm -hmm. poke out the eyes, now mm -hmm. he's disabled. He can't see. I don't know where to go from there. I mean, All right. So, so, so we got, let, let's say that takes four or five chickens to figure out how to get on Vision impaired elephant. Yeah. So now they, they, now he's blind. Now you get right. a blind elephant. Then they got to get him to the ground. Because I think yeah. we're saying they, they've got to peck him to death, right? Yeah, but I mean, elephant skin, like they say, like, like bullets can even penetrate, like, <laughs> elephants. So, I mean, a, a pecking okay, chicken is not going to do it. I don't know why people know that either. All right, so could we, they quarantine the him just till he starves to death? I mean, <laughs> they stand around him. Could they somehow keep the elephant from having access to food? Yeah. Water. But sooner or later, is he going to eat a chicken? 
So the chickens have isolated the elephant. Yeah, they've isolated from so they can't drink water because every living thing needs water, right? right. These okay. are really Somehow. intelligent chickens because I'm thinking they've got to push buttons. Like, what are they? And they've got to be motivated to kill them. Uh, they're upset yes. at this elephant. Yes. This elephant has wronged them. So back to the ill-tempered. So they're very mm. angry chickens. They're they're in, they're, they're they're in a foul mood. Boom mm. boom. So all right, so we've got them blinded. We got four or five chickens blinding, and now we got to get them to the ground, right? So if they start pecking his legs. Or, you know, if they just all focus on one roosters. leg, yeah. if you damage one leg bad enough, he's going to go down, right? I mean, right. Can he stay right. down on three legs? So you got four or five attacking the eyes. You got, I don't know, ten surrounding one elephant leg. If you all could see the you look that Carrie is giving us both right Packing now. the tar out of that leg. It's Star Wars. Yes. It's Star Wars. With the... the yeah, the, the chickens ad, need the like ad, a ad rope walkers. to like fly around the legs to take the legs chickens out. Chickens don't fly, though. See, that's a problem. Yeah, that's the problem. How did they get to the eyes then? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> this, is, this is falling apart. Do we need you, another quiz question? They jumped on them. So, uh, so all right. I think well, we, that's why. I mean, you talk about like the environment. We need an environment, right? So we have a. They have to be in a place where they can. The elephant access. has to be sleeping. The elephant is walking. Ooh, by. the sneak up on him when he's do elephants sleep? Do elephants sleep standing up? I have no. Let's, idea. Okay, so we can fact check that for the moment. Let's yeah. just assume they sleep laying down. Yeah. Because it helps our argument. So the elephant is asleep. <laughs> he's on his side in the Sahara, and he's laying down. He's right. out cold. So they come up, and before he awakens, they peck his eyes out. Wow. Right. So now he's going to wake up disoriented. Because he's, of course, woken up. His and then they peck him to death. Down. So we say, we, you think 25 chickens could, could take care of that? Uh, the skin is thick, man. I don't know. I think that... You know, I, I've seen these YouTube videos with these guys that, that, you know, with their guns, try to see how many how many bolts it takes to, like, fall a tree. I think it's going to take a lot of chickens. I think that it would take a lot of pecks. A lot of pecks to, to break the skin of an elephant, break the hide. Yeah. Um, unless, you know, they somehow could use their feathers to use, like, <laughs> something to, to, you know, like... Block his trunk? Could they tie his trunk in a knot? Uh, suffocate him. Because that would be bad. <laughs> I don't think they, I don't think they can tie. I don't I don't think tie. They're not opposable thumbs. That's the problem. <laughs> they actually might, but I don't I think the manual dexterity. So maybe they just peck his trunk. Yeah. Because it's it's thin, it's narrow, maybe they can break through and if, if he doesn't have a trunk, I don't know that you can. No, he'd be long. blind he'd be a blind trunkless elephant. Which would be a dead elephant, I would There we say. go. All right. So there we go. So we've done it. Done. Oh yeah. You sounded like Dirty Harry just there. All right. It is that time of our episode where we do our world-famous fact check. <laughs> world and being that it was us doing most of the talking, I'm sure there are many. So yes. we are going to rely on our famous and very well-cooked fact checker, Miss Carrie. What do you got for us today? I have a couple things for you. Actually, more than a couple. So do, elephant, right. do elephants sleep standing up? Apparently... They um, sleep most often standing up, but they lay down every third or fourth day to sleep. So the chickens would have to pick their moment. That's right. <laughs> They're stalking the <laughs> elephant. Strategic. No, not tonight, guys. <laughs> he stand it. He's standing. stand night. I'll try again tomorrow. Thursday for sure. Your next one is in regards to hockey. So I have stats here. Would it be correct to say stats, mm-hmm. Mr. Mogger? So I have Brett Hull from 1992 to 93 in that season with St. Louis. We have 54 goals and 47 assists, which is a negative 27. So he was a minus 27. Minus in spite 27. Of, in spite of scoring that much, he was a minus 27. Yes, Great, sir. but not outstanding. Okay, your next one, Wayne Gretzky. 2,857 career points. How many years did he actually play? A lot. Um, again, we're getting in a position to fact check. We're going to have to I fact know, check the fact check. I try, you know, 894 goals and 1,963 assists. And then I have another person that we have here. And so correct me if I have the name wrong. Is it Jeremy? Yaramir Yager. Yamamir Yaramir. Yaramir Yager. Yaramir Yager. Yes. Second all time for scoring points within hockey. Right. Within a season. No, no, career. Career wise. So, career wise, we have 1,921 total points. Which is fewer than Gretzky's assists alone for the career. And by the way, I appreciate your support with getting this information this time around, sir. And if I may jump in, I'm going to break Norm here just a little bit because while I was listening and learning, um, I I was curious. So, I looked it up. So, uh, Wayne Gretzky played for a total of four teams. From 1979 to 1999. 
I did not know 20 that. years. Yep. Nickname is? The Great One. The Great One. Didn't his wife sounds take like a, for good reason. Oh, I was going to fact check again. Didn't his wife take a hockey puck, though? Yeah, his wife got hit in the hockey with a hockey puck one year, didn't she? I don't just spend the next hour just fact-checking things. I'm so sorry. Know. Okay, and then the next item, we're actually we're going rogue a little bit today because, after all, we tried a little bit different format with all of us. Um, Mr. Land is actually going to talk to us um, about the term that is used for skiing behind a car <laughs> in the locker. <laughs> because who knew it was a thing, but apparently... It is. I did not know it was a thing. I mean, I knew it was a thing for, for me, but then you also shared a similar story, which caused me to want to do a little research. There's a name for this. This is called skitching. And I am not here to promote skitching no. whatsoever, because apparently it is dangerous and illegal. Some of the risks of injuries include concussions, traumatic injuries, broken bones, and possibly death. So, skitching, coming from the words ski and hitch, as in oh. hitch on a vehicle, like skitching. That. So lucky to have you here then. That was a near-death experience, apparently. Maybe you could have shared that. Apparently. I have no idea how close I came to death and disfigurement, but we made it we out alive. do. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. and as um, the person that feels the need to say this, remember, boys and girls and all those listening, we are not actually endorsing the act of no. sketching. No. Do yeah. not do it. And on one more note, just because I'm running wild with this fact-checking, uh, Wayne Gretzky's wife was injured when a glass broke out during a hockey game in 1997. Nice. Good call. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap us up for the day. Thank you, as always, for listening. Um, always like sharing our weird stories, um, and we've all got hundreds of them that I'm sure will be coming up in future episodes. Uh, just to let our listeners know, we will be taking Christmas break off. So um, we'll be dark for a couple of weeks. Our next episode will be released on January 5th, where we'll be speaking with Assistant Superintendent Robert McCollum and Hesperia Junior High School Principal Faisal Bell uh, about uh, interviewing and hiring new employees. As always, we want to remind you to take a minute to rate, review, or subscribe to Alone With Our Principals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we're on Facebook, so feel free to join us there for links, contests, and other fun. Thank you, everybody. Have a wonderful holiday season. Bye. Good holidays. You're still here? It's over. Go home.